0: Thanks, Chris. My name is Dave Falsgraf. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm a satisfied customer of what Alcoholics Anonymous gives away for free. I love AA. I love being sober. I love being active in the program. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what my life is like today. I've got 10 minutes to qualify, which is plenty of time. Uh, I heard a a guy uh, at a conference number of years ago, uh, this was up in Prince Edward Island, and he was a Frenchman, and he was a Canadian, and he was a, a First Nation guy, and he spoke in a dialect sometime, and French sometimes, and whatever. And, and he spoke for about an hour and 20 minutes. And I was amazed that the crowd just kept looking at him and saying, you know, nobody got up and said, I don't understand. And everybody was quiet at the end. They all clapped and everything. And I said to an old timer afterwards, what was, what was that? What, everybody was sitting there paying attention, and nobody could understand this guy. And the old-time AA guy said to me, Dave, there's only one story in AA. You know what his story was. And I said, That's right, yeah. It's the same as my story. It's the story of failure at life. It's the story of not being able to stop drinking. It's the story of lying all the time about my drinking. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about what my life is like today. Uh, because I am a great, you know, I've gotten an awful lot out of AA. I I am married today to a woman. uh, We'll celebrate 32 years of marriage this August, hopefully. She has never seen me take a drink. She is my greatest supporter of AA. She has never said to me, ever, would you mind not going to that meeting? Would you mind, can't we go out for dinner tonight, or can't we do something, let's go to a movie? Never. She has never said that to me. Uh, I have... uh, between the two of us, we have four children. At one time, we had five teenagers. That was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, I have eight grandchildren. I am privileged to be involved in their life. They're all living in the Buffalo area. All the kids are in the Buffalo area. Uh, it's wonderful to be invited in their life because I don't. Well, I don't deserve to be in their life. The way that the kind of father I was, uh, I gave up my right to be a part of their lives. But. My children have invited me back in. My ex-wife has invited me back into her life. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I'm a cancer survivor. uh, I've had three cancer operations. Uh, So far as I know, I'm cancer-free today. I can tell you that the big book is correct. It says you get a lot more sympathy for cancer than you do for alcoholism. (laughs) (laughs) never got any sympathy for this alcoholism piece. I wanted it, but I never got it. I am retired from the practice of law eight years, Chuck was my partner. Uh, I had, uh, I'm very fortunate to have uh, uh, had that profession and not lost my license to do that. I came close but I did not lose my license to practice law and when I got sober I was able to be useful again in the practice of law. Born and raised in Buffalo, went to school at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, Jesuits College, and uh, I had a nice uh, privileged upbringing. My father was a dentist. He was a member of a beautiful country club in Buffalo, which I belonged to as well after I got married. I uh, was the president of the drinking fraternity in that college, and the reason I was is not because I, uh, you know, it was because I could drink a lot and not get drunk, or at least not appear to be drunk. And that does not look like problem drinking. That looks like control drinking, to me. Uh, in 1965, when I was to graduate, this war was heating up in Vietnam. and I so admire veterans today. My dad was a marine veteran. My dad my brother was a veteran, uh, but that's, that was a war that I did not want anything to do with. And so I applied around and I got accepted to law school. Uh, then they, so I didn't get drafted, and they changed the rules, so you had to be married, and I married my college sweetheart, and then they changed the rules that you had to have kids, so we had our first beautiful child. Uh, so, so I, I avoided serving that war, thank God. Um, I got a, graduated from law school, and I got a job with a firm that I wanted to, to be with. And this alcoholism thing was like a train coming down the tracks on my life without its light on. And I never saw it coming. I didn't. I thought drinking was my friend. Uh, other people, as years went by, thought otherwise. So there's a guy, uh, a good friend of mine, who says that uh, the alcoholism progression is, is sure we drink more as the time goes on, but really, the real progression is the amount of problems in our life. Problems pile up and become astonishingly hard to solve, our book says. And that's what was happening in my life, you know. She was starting to get aggravated by the amount of my drinking and the, the men I, women I worked with started to get aggravated by the amount of my drinking and they would start to speak to me about it and I would make promises and I would mean those promises. And then when the heat got off, I would go back to my usual drinking habits. Um, as time went on, I had to lie about my drinking because I was hiding it everywhere. I was waking up every night, every morning, just in sweat. And I thought I was always coming down with a cold. And was, of course, every night I was just starting to withdraw from alcohol. I had to start drinking in the morning to calm my nerves. I had to start, start drinking at noon. I, I, used, I used to have a whole bunch of guys. We used to drink at noon together, and then as it got worse and I couldn't drink with them anymore, I had to drink find alone places, downtown Buffalo, to drink my lunch. And uh, on, uh, in 1978, I woke up one morning with a big fat face, and we lived near Millard Fillmore Hospital in Buffalo. And uh, my wife took me over to the emergency room, and I had this infection behind my nose running toward my brain. And they did this operation to to help the infection. They filled me with antibiotics. And I was in the hospital two weeks because I got a staph infection. And and as part of the diagnosis of what was wrong with me, these doctors took a CAT scan of my head. And this was kind of a new thing back there in 1978. And uh, after two weeks... uh, well, were, the day I was to be discharged, the neurosurgeon and the eye, ear, nose, and throat guy and, and the neurologist, all three doctors came in to see me. And uh, they had these pictures in my brain. And they said, how much do you drink? And I said something like, you know, I haven't had a drink in two weeks, you know. <laughs> Some smart ass thing. Thank and they say, well, it really doesn't matter how much you drink. But however much you drink, you're 34 years old. You've got the brain of a 54-year-old. And we give you two to three years of drinking left until you have a wet brain. What do you think of that? Now, you know, I said something like, you know, can I have another opinion? Or, uh? And what I'm thinking to myself is two to three years, doctors are pretty conservative. That probably means four years, right? That's not bad,
1: right?
0: Now, they're giving me some pretty serious information at one right in one ear and out the other. Now, that should have hit a receptor somewhere that said, holy mackerel. What the heck is going on with your drinking? It didn't. It missed that receptor completely. I go home, and I'm not drinking for another week, but I'm still out of work, and of course, she's there. She's worried sick. we got these three kids, and I'd been told by this firm that I had to find another job and uh, she's not praising me for not drinking and so I go back to work and it's the martinis at lunch again. You know, because I'm an alcoholic. I have the brain of an alcoholic which we'll talk about and the mind of an alcoholic I have the body of an alcoholic I have the disposition of an alcoholic and so I don't have a prayer against alcoholism. But uh, in a little while, I get served with these papers for divorce, and and uh, the uh, it's all about my not being able to see my kids and everything, and I knew that our relationship was pretty much shot, but I loved these kids, and I wanted to see them pretty badly, so I, I, I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went over to the central office, and I spoke to this old guy named Harry, and he said he'd stay there after work, because they still had this job, and I went over to see him, and, I, and he says to me, so you think you're an alcoholic? I said, I, I don't know. I think she thinks I'm an alcoholic. He says, well, let me ask you this. Did you have anything to drink today? I said, yeah, I had a couple of drinks on the way over here. I Jesus, oh, what did I say that for? It's like, I'm, come on, I know he's going to say now, and he didn't make much of that. But he asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting. I said, I'll go to an AA meeting. And the next day, I went to the Cathedral Park group at noon. And that was my first AA meeting. And it was a bunch of people like we have in the room here today. You know, I had some people with ties on, some people off the street. Pretty much normal workers, downtown Buffalo. And they were smiling and they were talking. And that fellowship, I could hear that yak, yak, yak going on before the meeting. Everybody paid attention to everybody else during the meeting. Everybody listened, it seemed to me. And I was blown away by that. That thing that's in this room right now, that thing that goes on in every meeting. You know, and I try to get to a meeting just about every day. Uh, I probably average a meeting a day these days. And, I, and, and you know, and I've come to the conclusion I'm not going to really learn an awful lot about Alcoholics Anonymous anymore, right? I've probably learned everything I can learn about Alcoholics Anonymous. But there's something that happens in these rooms that I need on a daily basis, it hits me in here, you know, and we'll talk about that. Now, How I have how come, with your help, to augment that feeling I have in here, to help that grow, to help that connection grow to this power, this tremendous power, energy that's in this room. So I went to AA, and, and after a while, I didn't get this not drinking thing. was pretty tough for me. I didn't get that for a while. Uh, but nobody made much of that either. Come on back, Dave. Come on back. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. Nobody yelled at me. Everybody out there was yelling at me about my drinking. Nobody in here yelled at me. And I got a sober day, you know, and I got a sober week, and I got a couple sober months. And, and everything, it was like AA was magical. She had left me with the kids. She came back in the house.
1: I had some hope
0: for getting out of the financial ruin I was in. and uh, I got a job with a better law firm, a better job with another law firm. They knew that I was in AA. It was pretty amazing. And I guess my thinking was, Alcoholics Anonymous is so phenomenal that if you don't have your wife back, you don't have a better job, and you're not on your way to some financial security, keep coming. <laughs> you know, this will happen to you. So I got real busy with those kids and ballet lessons and hockey stuff and making it up to her and and I guess I stopped going to meetings. I guess I don't remember real an awful lot. But I started drinking again, and, and it was pretty. It was pretty sad from then on. And I could not stop. Uh, belly full of, uh, or a head full of AA and a heart full of AA and a belly full of booze. Not a good combination. And uh, so I'm lying about it all the time, but I'm drinking all the time too. And on May 21st, 1979, I'm. I come back into this beautiful office I have, and, and uh, I've had some drinks, of course, at noon, and I'm so freaking tired. So I'm just going to cl- i gonna take a cat nap. So what I'm going to do. So I close the door, and I must have locked the door, and I passed out behind my desk. And uh, the lawyers in the firm, you know, uh, Dave, open the door. Open the door. Open up. Ring, ring, Dave, please pick up. Please pick up, you know. I'm passed out. Those poor men and women in that law firm thought they had taken my life. They thought that they were going to find behind that locked door a dead man. So they got the uh, rescue squad up and they got the guys with the hatchets and they chopped down that door. And I'm behind this desk and all of a sudden I look up and I see these firemen with his hats, you know, and hatchets. And I am think, whoa, what is going on here, right? are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm all right. What, what, yeah, I'm okay. Have you been drinking? Now, at those times, you could walk into Brylin Hospital in Buffalo, and, and when you, well, I could get detoxed over the weekend, and I would do that. And they'd hand me a bottle full of Valium on the way out and say, just don't drink. You'll be all right. If you, feel, if you feel like drinking, take one of these Valiums. So I used those as an excuse for acting drunk. I said, no, I took too many Valium, you know. And they got this, we had started this, Group of sober lawyers in Buffalo, and my first time around, and I called this guy over, and he sat there, and the senior partner sat there, and the sober guy from AA said to me, "Have you been drinking? And everything about me was drunk, my Irish heritage my my face was full of my veins, my eyes were, were coals, sen, sen you know to hide the smell uh, and I said, "No don, i haven 't been drinking." And he just shook his head. He turned to the senior partner. He said, well, why don't you do yourselves both a favor and fire this bastard? So the senior partner said, goodbye. You know, and that was May 21st, 1979, which I thought was the worst day of my life. It was not a great day, but that was the day of my last drink. So it turned out to be the best thing in my life. So what do I know, you know about what's going to happen to me? So this weekend, what we're going to do, or this today... We're gonna take a look at the 12 steps and our journey through the 12 steps. Now, Chuck and I aren't gonna add anything to the 12 and 12 or to what's in the big book. We're gonna do a little reading out of them. But what we're gonna to try to share with you is our own experience going through these steps and what happens as a result of those experiences. Now, I can tell you as I'm standing here today that there, I don't think there's ever been a person in Alcoholics Anonymous who has had more resistance to taking these 12 steps I didn't do it the first time I was in AA. I get back here with my tail between my legs, and I still don't want to do it. I'm not drinking. What the hell else do you want from me? But you guys shared your experience with me. Dave, you got your own experience. You didn't do the steps, and you drank again. Yeah, 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 but this time I know it's serious. I'm not going to drink again. So we'll tell you a little bit about that, and I'm going to just speak very briefly about the first step. I want to say this too, where we're going with this today. Twelve steps, at the very end of the twelve steps, the twelve steps says, having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps. That's what we get out of doing all this work before. Doesn't say having a new job, another marriage, financial security. No. We have a spiritual experience as the result of taking these steps. The reason, not a result, the result. That's all we get. That's what we get. So, if there's a lot of work before that, this spiritual experience thing better be pretty good right that better that better be a pretty good payoff at the end, so that's where we're marching today with our experience with the twelve steps i uh, We have so much we could talk about here I'll, I'll, I sponsor a couple of guys who are drinking right now, and one guy's just been around a little bit. And his mother texted me last night and she said, uh, you know, she said, Michael thinks that he's smarter than booze. You know, that kind of wasn't was sitting right with me. So I was thinking about that this morning when I was doing my little prayer meditation. And I texted her back and I said, you know, Michael just wants the pain to go away, right? Alcohol takes the pain away. It'll take it away. You know, I, I, I was One of my heroes and mentors, a guy named Jack from White Plains, used to say, David, no alcoholic has ever taken a half a bottle of vodka back to a liquor store and said, I want to return this. It didn't work. That's never happened. And that's my experience. Booze works. It works on that pain. It does. But the consequences of it, that phenomenon of craving that the doctor tells us about, that I have to have more all the time. So I'm in, I, I go over to the Stutzman in Buffalo, and, and I'm, I'm talking to my counselor there, and he says, well, Dave, this first step, you've been in AA, you know what the first step is? I said, yeah, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. He says, well, do you think you're powerless over alcohol? I said, I don't know, it's a, it's a liquid that sits in a cup. It's, there's a cup or a glass of a liquid. What does that mean to be powerless over that? I said, I know this much that I'm, when I'm not drinking, all I'm doing is thinking about my next drink. And when I am drinking, I can't stop. He said, well, that qualifies for powerlessness. He says, what about this dash that your life had become unmanageable? I, said, I don't know. I said, I'm sitting in the basement of an alcohol rehabilitation unit attached to a psychiatric hospital. I'm a defendant in an action for divorce. I'm a defendant in six or seven civil actions for a collection of money. By court order, I can't see my kids. I've been fired from the last two law firms I work for. I'm unemployed and unemployable. I've told the last two cars I own, I'm in tremendous debt. I owe the IRS tens of thousands of dollars. I haven't filed tax returns in two or three, three years. I said, "I'm awaiting trial on two DWIs at this time." He said, "Wait a minute, I want to tell you something." So what? He goes, "Your life is unmanageable."
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I'm telling you how sick I was. I had to be told that, you know, because I would argue with you about that. Here's what I know today: is so my life can be unmanageable today without alcohol. Easily, I can be restless, irritable, and discontented without alcohol. And our doctor. Road tells us those are conditions of the non-drinking alcoholic, not the drinking alcoholic. Booze works, right? But I'm restless, irritable, and discontented unless I have something as a substitute for that. So I'll uh, let's see. Do I got more time, Chuck? Or let's see. Oh, I can keep going, right?
2: Just uh, finish up step one, and then I'll. Yeah, forty seconds. Um, Forty seconds. All
1: right, I got I got a forty second story.
0: Um, When I walked in with all those problems I just told you about, I did not see how these twelve steps would have any effect on those. I needed money, I needed a job, I needed respect, I needed to get my self respect back. I needed connections with my family. I needed. I didn't need 12 steps. That seemed to have no connection with it. But maybe you've heard the story about the person who wants to get a devil's food cake and buys a box of Betty Crocker devil's food cake mix and waits for the cake to appear and nothing happens. Says, "Oh, I know what happened. I didn't read the directions." So you get the cake mix box and they read the directions and they wait for the cake to appear. And nothing happens. So, pfft, of course, I should go to a daily meeting and sit at tables with other people and read the directions.
1: <laughs> so you go to meetings
0: and sit around tables and read the directions as to how to get a vote cake and I'll be damned. Nothing happens. There's no cake. Until somebody tells you that you've got to take some action. And you've got, to, you've got to read those directions and take the action that's suggested. If you want to get what is offered, we're going to read a lot about promises today. We've got to do the action. Thanks.
2: Uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Chuck Beinhauer. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, sober, uh, by the grace of God, and the help of Alcoholics Anonymous since August 9, the, the 1989. Uh, I'm a member of the How It Works Men's Discussion Group. I have a sponsor, Dave B. I have a job in my home group, and I have a job in outside of my home group. Uh, I learned that as a result of coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, This morning, uh, I asked God what he wanted me to do. He said to tell people that he loves us and he cares about us. If we ask him for help, uh, he'll help us. And really, I'm going to spend uh, the whole rest of the day repeating that line in hundreds of different ways. Uh, But what I found out was that, uh, you know, I'm an alcoholic and uh, uh, I have a a thinking problem, Uh, but I didn't know that. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought I had a drinking problem. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, my drinking history. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the first step. And then I'm going to talk some on the second step. And then we'll, uh, Dave will uh, uh, take over. And we're just going to alternate back and forth um, from now and for the rest of the day. Um, I started drinking when I was a, a teenager, a uh, 7th seventh, sixth, seventh, seventh or 8th grade, something like that. I went to a dance and uh, somebody had some beer. They said, uh, I want to go have some beer. And I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. And I'd never had beer. I'd seen my family members drinking, saw some of them drunk. Uh, my uncle, uh, Pat Sullivan, not the Pat Sullivan from Rochester, uh, was uh, an alcoholic and he had never had a drink. So I... Uh, I I was a little confused about how this alcohol works, because at that time, uh, my uncle Pat was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, Um, and uh, I didn't know anything about it. No one had told me anything about it. Uh, I'd seen my uncles uh, come down to uh, my house, and we lived with my grandmother, and they would come on Sundays, and they would drink, and they'd go out, they'd come back, and they'd get drunk, they'd be drunk. Uh, and so for years, uh, I thought like I thought the Lamatinas got you drunk, or the Sorges, or the D'Angelos, because they would come back drunk. And my mother would, my mother or one of the sisters would say, you know, "Those damn D'Angelos got Joe drunk again today." You know? <laughs> oh no, Pete's out with the Lamatinas. They're gonna get him drunk. So I thought people got you drunk. You know, that, that's what I thought the deal was. Um uh, but I, I went up, I had that beer, and I was little, I am mean, not very big now, but I was little when I was in the seventh grade, I uh, probably weighed about 85 pounds, um, uh, and skinny, is it rail. um, and I drank that beer, and, like, I, I stopped being little. I mean, I was, like, big, I was bigger than the captain of the football team. I was, I thought this was terrific, and I went down into that dance, and, uh, I'm breathing into everyone. Just getting as close as I could and breathe into them so that they could smell that beer. I wanted them to know that uh, uh, that day Chuck B had become a man. Um, and I got out there and I was dancing. I don't think I'd ever danced before, but man, I was going wild. I, I was like, I thought I was the head of the party. And I got sick and I, you know, blacked out. There's lots of parts of the night I don't remember. I uh, threw up. I went home. I threw up told my mother the cat got sick in my bedroom. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I was really sick. And the next day I got up, I was deathly ill from this thing. And uh, that should have been enough. It should have been enough. When I was uh, seven years old, I had gone to school and they uh, we had something for lunch. And that night I had uh, hives. I had a really bad case of hives. I'm itching and itching. My mother's trying to figure out what caused it. And so... Uh, she asked me, What did you have for lunch today? And I said, Well, we had the tuna noodle casserole. And she said, it Must have been the tuna noodle casserole. That must be what got you sick. Uh, and from that day, seven years old, until today, I've not eaten tuna noodle casserole. And you couldn't give me enough money to eat tuna noodle casserole uh, because it made me sick. Uh, But I got much sicker with that alcohol that first night of drinking than I did on that tuna noodle casserole. And when I woke up the next day, the only thing I could think about was I could not wait until the next weekend so that I could drink. Um, And that began a pattern. It began a pattern of drinking. I drank uh, throughout uh, uh, junior high and high school. I drank more often than once a week. And... uh, Always on the weekends, every once in a while during a weeknight. Um, but it wasn't affecting me, or at least I didn't think it was. You know, I, I was doing well in school. I got uh, got through school. Um, went to uh, Georgetown University. I did well at uh, Georgetown. I went to law school at Catholic University. And throughout this whole period, like I'm drinking. There's Uh, Some episodes that uh, people still talk about, if I talk to someone from my college, they'll mention some of these weekend events, none of which I remember, I can only recall them because they told me what happened. I uh, was a blackout drinker, I was a puker, um, and I was a periodic drinker. Uh, I did not drink daily, I could go for periods of time without uh, taking a drink. And so I thought, "How can I be an alcoholic? I don't drink every day. And of course that was just you know, that was uh, my misunderstanding of the disease of alcoholism. In our book, uh, Bill says there are a couple of ways you can tell if you're alcoholic. If you uh, find that you uh, try to uh, stop drinking and you can't quit entirely, or if you find when you pick up a drink that you're unable to stop. Uh, those are two good signs that you're, pro- you're probably alcoholic. And I was in that first category. I could quit drinking, but I couldn't stay quit, um, and, and that was uh, a real, it was befuddling to me. Uh, because I knew if, if I went on a binge, that I, if I, I wouldn't drink for a few days, or sometimes a few weeks, or a couple of months. Um, so I thought that meant I was controlling my drinking. Well, that, that, but what I didn't understand was that when I wasn't drinking, all that, I had my eye on that prize. I knew when I was going to drink again. You know, I knew that day was going to come. So when I'm pledging, that's it. I'll never drink again. I'm done. Uh, to you know, to my family, to my girlfriends, uh, to my friends, uh, because I jeopardized their lives. Uh, I I thought that that would be. Uh, uh, I would never drink again, uh, but in the back of my mind, I knew, well, it's, you know, the end of Lent, I'll drink, or in two or three weeks, I'll feel better, and then my mind would say to me, well, that was a little exaggeration, you don't really need to quit for your whole life, you know, tonight will be better, uh, I had a a, a marvelous experience with gin. The first time I ever drank gin, it was like like unbelievable. I thought I had found Nirvana. I mean, this this was better than anything I'd ever experienced. Um, And then the next time I drank gin, it was like hell. It was like the worst experience I'd ever had in my life. I mean, it was this incredible fight with my first wife. I thought we were going to get divorced, it was terrible. Yelling and screaming and it was horrible. So what I concluded from that was that uh, gin is it's an, an unusual elixir. And every other time you drink gin, you have a wonderful, wonderful experience with it. Uh, as I look back on it, when I got recovered, what I realized, uh, I never had another good experience with gin. They were all horrible. I mean, oh my God, the fights that we would get into. But what I would remember was the last one was bad, so the next one's going to be the good one. Uh, and I never saw that there, there was no pattern here. The, the truth was that if I put alcohol in my body, bad things happened to me and to the people around me. I, it caused a, a lot of uh, devastation in a lot of people's lives. Uh, I went to, um, uh, got out of law school, and I practiced law for a couple of years in Washington, D.C., uh, and by now my drinking is really ratcheted up, and, and I've enhanced that with, uh, with drugs I graduated from uh, high school in 1967, and that was really the, just about the time when the whole drug culture uh, emigrated f- from, the, uh, from the ghetto to uh, mainstream America and middle-class America uh, began uh, its fascination uh, with drugs, and I was, I was part of that. Uh, it certainly was part of my story. Uh, when I look back on my life, though, I think that uh, the, the reason I used those drugs was because it enhanced my ability to drink. I could drink longer. I could, I could uh, uh, drink more. Um, and and I, I think that was really the focus of it. I did not become a drug addict. I, when I ran out of money, uh, it never occurred to me to go buy drugs. When I ran out of money, whenever I got my hands on money, I went to the bar. I, I bought booze. and So I, I know I'm an alcoholic. Could have become an addict, I suppose. I maybe just didn't do it long enough. But uh, uh, I, this, it was a big part of my story. Um, but I went through uh, college. Uh, again, I, did, I still did well. and I went to law school. I did uh, very well in law school. Um, and uh, after a couple of years in Washington, D.C., I moved up to New York City and started a law firm with two other young lawyers, uh, and in the course of the next three years, uh, this law firm really grew. I mean, it really grew, expanded. We, we uh, achieved a national reputation. We had law students from all the major law schools in the United States sending us resumes and asking us if they could come and interview with us and uh, come to work with us. On um, yeah, March 5, 1979, I got a phone call from uh, my mother's best friend, um, she told me she was in the hospital that uh, my mother was very ill, and uh, I needed to get my tell my partners that uh, I would I had to leave. I had to get home immediately, uh, that she might die. Um, a couple hours later, she called and told me that my mother had passed away. It turned out that I was right in the middle of, of a of a real binge at that time. Um, I, we'd started a, a Thursday before. And had like a whole warehouse of uh, drugs. We had hashish and marijuana and cocaine. We had uh, sherry and we had scotch. And we had a stockpile of beer. And I was on a run. Um, and I just continued on that run. I just I brought home as many drugs as I dared to bring on the plane and uh, got up to Warsaw, New York. And I went to that uh, funeral for the, and I remembered nothing. Between March 5th and the morning of March 9th, when we are going to bury my mother, I really have all, almost no recollection at all. There's a couple of images that come into my mind. I don't know whether I have made them up or they really happened. But uh, I'm sitting in the funeral home in Warsaw, New York, early in the morning on March the 9th. And I, this voice says to me, Chuck, today you've got to stay straight. You've got to stay straight. You've got to stay sober. This is your mother's funeral. This is a very important event in your life, and you gotta have to have some memories of it. So I thought to myself, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, and then about a minute later, this voice says to me, uh, "Well, you know, you don't have to stay sober the whole day. If you just hold out till the, you know, the funeral breakfast, you, you, you'll be fine. If you get through that, you'll be fine." So I'm negotiating now, and I say, oh, yeah, okay, that's good, that sounds good, I can do that. And then the voice says, well, you don't really need, who cares at the funeral breakfast? Nobody's going to care what the hell happens there. It's just, if you can just make it to the funeral, the burial, you'll be fine, get to the cemetery. And I'm, and I'm relieved, I think, well, that's not so bad, you know, that's less than two and a half, maybe three hours at the most away, I can do that, that's not a problem. And I sat back, and I was just like,
1: Completely
2: relieved. Thank God. Oh my God, that's wonderful. I can do this. And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out this big chunk of black hashish and I put that in my mouth and I started eating that thing. And at that moment, right then, I believe that I disconnected. I pulled the plug on my relationship with God, my relationship with all human beings in my relationship with myself. And I entered into a soulless world where I would live for many, many years. I went back to New York and in the next nine months um, did a number of things. As a, a, I negotiated and um, uh, concluded a, a five-year, multi-million dollar lease for the law firm I moved the entire law firm from uh, One World Trade Center uh, to uh, One State Street Plaza. We brought on uh, 10 new associates. The firm was uh, growing and expanding at a rapid rate. Uh, On December the 14th, 1979, I called in all 35 employees. I told them, uh, today is payday, uh, but you're not going to get paid. We don't have any money to uh, pay you. And you remember that Christmas bonus we offered you? Well, you're not going to get that either. Uh, you don't have uh, the money to pay that. And uh, on December 31st, 1979, this law firm will be officially dissolved. Good luck. Uh, hope you have a nice Christmas. In between March 5th, 1979 and December 14th, 1979, I violated every ethical canon of the legal profession that I had sworn to myself that I would never, ever do. Things that I knew that I would never do, I did. I don't think I slept from July of 1979 until, I don't know, a long time. But certainly through December 14, 1979, I don't think I slept more than 15 minutes at a clip. Uh, and I was in a total brownout. I have no idea how I was functioning. I was totally using alcohol and drugs all of the time. That uh, law firm failed for one reason, and one reason alone. The managing partner of that law firm was an alcoholic. And the managing partner was me. Now you think that would have been enough. you think that bottom would have been enough to convince someone not to drink anymore. Uh, but it never even crossed my mind. Never, it never crossed my mind that I should not drink or I should not use drugs. It didn't cross my mind. Instead, uh, I, I lived in this delusional world, you know, that... Uh, uh, my friend uh, Ryan, uh, he said, this, told me this one day, and I love it. Um, and this is the third time I'm using it, so I'll never have to give him credit after today.
1: <laughs>
2: he said, "When I was drinking, I was in full flight from a reality I never lived in,
1: <laughs> and that's what was going on.
2: I mean, I, I was so divorced from reality and from the real world, and I would just continued to make it up, uh, and so." Faced with the prospect of accepting my responsibility for the destruction of this firm, for the devastation that I brought in the lives of all of these people and their families, I perceived myself as a victim, that I had a misunderstanding partner, that the law firm failed because law itself was corrupt, and I was trying to be a champion of legal uh, justice. And that rather than participate in this legal world anymore, which had deteriorated beyond all human hope, it was better that I not practice law and that I leave New York City and I go back to my hometown. And I constructed this story, and I believed it. I spent about a year knocking around New York. This wonderful man, Ed, um, he took me in, he helped me out, Paid me a few bucks a week to ride around with him and he, he would talk with me. Um, I thought that was pretty good. But what I realize now is he was just hoping that I would get back to practice in law. But I couldn't do it. I'd lost the mental ability to practice law. I'd lost the... the uh, I, had, I no longer can, was able to think and perform in a way that lawyers think and perform. And uh, it never occurred to me. That alcohol had a part in that. I declared a personal bankruptcy on November fourteenth, nineteen eighty. Left New York in total disgrace on December tenth, nineteen eighty. That day, I had packed up this moving van. I had a whole moving van It was filled with all of the things that I accumulated from the time I'd left Warsaw, New York, nineteen sixty seven, until uh, that day. And I was going to drive it home um, the next morning. Uh, I went upstairs to my apartment. I had to go get something from the truck. A couple hours later, I went downstairs to get it. And uh, the truck was gone. The truck had been stolen. And uh, everything that I had ever had was taken away. Now, you would think that that would be pretty upsetting to most people. But it happened that I had some boo and some drugs, and I thought about it, and I gave it some hard thought, and I thought, well, this is, this is wonderful. I said, like, I'm square with the world. <laughs> I left Warsaw, New York with two suitcases in 1967. I'm going back in 1970, 1980 with two suitcases, so I'm even, you know, we're all square. Whatever I got out of them, I gave it back. Now, you know, I should have been devastated, but I, I thought that like this was some great metaphysical event right out of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, and, uh, and what I know, of course, is I was just totally delusional. I did not want to take responsibility for all those people that had been harmed, for all the dreams that were lost, all the hopes that were crushed. Because of my behaviors. Now I know today that my life was unmanageable because uh, as I grew older, I continued to think like an adolescent. I had no unity of thought, word, and deed. I could think one thing, I could say another, and I could do a third. And, and living that way, I separated myself from all human beings. Without that unity of thought, word, and deed, no one can deal with you, and no one could deal with me. I went back to Warsaw, New York. I found a, a woman, and we got married. And I, that marriage ended. And it wasn't until that marriage ended that I finally threw in the towel. After years of psychotherapy, where my therapist suggested to me every at the end of every session that I should go consider Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I finally uh, finally gave in. And I started. I went to my first AA meeting in June, May or June of 1988. Uh, my sobriety date is August the 9th of 1989. Uh, it took me a while. Uh, I went to some meetings in between, but I was trying to do this thing on my own. Uh, so I was powerless over alcohol because when I got near the stuff, I didn't know what was going to happen and I couldn't stay away from it. My life was unmanageable because I was a 40-year-old man and I was thinking like a 15-year-old, and you can't do that. All I thought about was me. That's why teenagers are so hard to deal with. And in order to grow up, in order to mature, you have to learn to think of others. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me. It's taught me that I lack the power to think of other people but it will connect me to a power and it will direct me to a power and it will show me a power that will allow me to think of others. And that's really what all the step work is from the, first, from the second step on. It's finding that power. The book says that lack of power is our dilemma, not, not booze. Alcohol isn't my problem. Lack of power is my problem and I lack the power to think of other human beings. But God has that power, and God is deep down inside every one of us. That's where we'll find him. And if we take the steps of this program, and we do the steps, don't look at the cake box, don't talk about the steps, but convert them into our lives, convert that action into our lives, we will find that power, and we will get that power that will allow us to think of others. And that's an, that's an, that's an amazing journey. And that's what Dave and I are talking to you about today. So, the, this second step, what we need to do is find the things that prejudice us from God. We sweep away our prejudices, those thoughts and ideas that do not allow us to believe that there is a power that will help us, that we must be self-sufficient, we must be self-reliant. All of those prejudices have to be swept away. And that's what we're doing in the the second step. Uh, You know, it says in the second step that we stand on the bridge of reason and we look at the shore of faith. So how do we get from the bridge of reason to the shore of faith? We jump off the bridge. And what happens is that there's a rowboat. And we land in that boat, and our sponsor is in that boat. And our sponsor rows rows us to shore. And we get to the shore of faith. And the sponsor does that, not by yelling at us, screaming at us, directing us, by telling us their stories and how they did it and leaving it up to us if we want to do it. There's no judgment. We don't need to judge anyone here. It's okay. Most alcoholics never find Alcoholics Anonymous. 99.5% of the alcoholics uh, in this world will die alcoholic deaths do you know how blessed that makes all of us to be here today just for today it's an incredible experience so um, you know what happens when we get to that shore of faith right we get a boat that's it and we go back out with that boat we hang around that bridge wait for somebody to jump in, row them back to the shore. All we do is we tell them our story. We don't have to cure anybody. We don't have to fix anybody. All we need to do is love them. Let them know we love them until they can love themselves. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Chuck. So the second step is, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, please don't get confused about what is sane and what is unsane or whatever. For us, for alcoholics, for me, sane living is not drinking. And that's what we're talking about in this step. We're talking about not drinking came to believe that a power greater than myself could keep me away from that next drink. That's what we're talking about. Um, And then the second chapter to our book, it talks about there is a solution to our problem. We know what the problem is, right? We're powerless over alcohol. That's the problem. Not that we're heavy drinkers or we get in trouble. We're powerless over alcohol. So it talks about a solution. And I I liked mathematics in college. And I liked... uh, uh, calculus. In calculus it's a little bit complicated math but it, it, it has taking a problem and finding a solution to it. For alcoholism a lot of people confuse that with a question and an answer. The question is, what the hell's wrong with you? You drink so much. And the answer is stop drinking. Now that doesn't work for us. Right? We've got a problem we're powerless over alcohol. So the solution is like a process to staying sober. So it takes a lot of this action that we're going to be talking about today. The the book says that our problem rests in our mind. Now, I was at a conference a number of years ago, listening to this doctor. This doctor was a addictionologist, and he was talking about the brain of an alcoholic and how they're very close to finding the synapses and the THIQ and all this stuff, and how it works, and, and also gene therapy, and the genes were isolating the alcohol gene and all this sort of, and it was kind of impressive. I was kind of impressed by that. And I went back and I said to this old timer, you know, they're very close to solving this alcoholism thing. And he said, really, tell me about this. So I told him what the doctor, about the brain. And he said, David, the book says the problem centers in the mind. And the mind is not the brain. The mind, the Greeks would call the mind the spirit, the soul. Uh, That's where our problem, what rests, in my mind. Um, And the step says that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It doesn't say we believe in anything. Nowhere in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous does it require us to believe in anything. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So I'm in AA a while, this time, and I'm going to all these meetings, and I'm not drinking as hard as I can, and I'm not drinking, and I'm going to these meetings, and I'm thinking to myself, that's all I'm doing with my life, and then this big light bulb goes off. Maybe there's a connection between going to all these meetings and my not drinking. And maybe if that's the case, maybe there is an energy, a force, a power, something in this room, a God, name it, that is making that happen. So I started to get experience in AA. So I came to believe that something in these rooms could restore me to sanity, could keep me sober. Uh, we got a friend in our, of ours in Buffalo who says that he was a teabag Catholic. He prayed when he was in hot water.
1: <laughs> and that was kind of my, my idea of, of power greater than
0: myself, you know? We talk about, in, in AA, about faith. And I, my mother's name was Faith. And she had great faith. She was a very devout Catholic. And she had a novena that she would say, and it was 27 days in petition and 27 days in Thanksgiving. And it didn't matter what the ultimate outcome was, but she said, I just do the novena for very serious things. Now, she had faith that that worked. And by that, she meant that she had experienced that when she did that, she got a result out of that prayer. And that's what we have in AA. We have faith. We have confident trust born of experience. I thought my mother had faith because God had sprinkled something on her. And so she believed a certain way that I couldn't. And I thought that you people in AA had somehow been magically sprinkled with this thing called faith, and that's nowhere I could get. But when I heard a guy say that faith is nothing more than confident trust born of experience, I said, I've got faith. I have faith in AA. It's much more than belief. I believed that when we started driving from Buffalo today, we would get here because we had directions
1: and whatever. (laughs)
0: But I have confident trust born of my experience that I will not pick up a drink today because of the number of things that I've done already today to ask my higher power to keep me sober. I was in the Stutzman and uh, the same counselor says to me, what do you think about the second step, Dave? I was tricky. Derek, how much time do I have? 25 minutes.
1: 25
0: minutes. So I can do the next step too alright. And uh, he said, Dave, what do you think about this second step? And I remember just bawling. I just cried. Teabag Catholic that I am, I could not go back to that same G-O-D that I was born and raised with. Because it seemed to me, looking back over my life, I was forever praying to get out of one jam or another. And I was forever making promises. You get me out of this, and I promise you I won't do that anymore. You get me out of this, and I promise I'll do this many prayers, I'll do that many good works, whatever. It just seemed to me that, that the G.O.D. of my life would always come through, and then I would, you know, I would just say, you know, whatever, whatever. You heard about the guy who's the lawyer who's going to be thrown into contempt of court if he's late one more time for a court appearance. And this day he knows he's gonna be driving around my parking lot and he's looking for a crazy and he says, God, please, please give me a parking space. Give me a parking space. I'll do anything, I can't be late for court again. And just then a car pulls out right in front of the courthouse. And the guy pulls up to him and says, Never mind God, I found one.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so
1: I go out and I'm sitting outside of the the
0: Stutzman and and and, and I'm sitting on a park bench and my second cousin is in this treatment facility with me. His name is Tom and he has been in and out of AA for a long, long time. And I'm explaining to Tom my dilemma. I said, Tom, I think there's a requirement for this Alcoholics Anonymous thing that you have to have a G.O.D. And I said, I can't do that. I can't go there anymore, I just can't. That one's gone. And he said, I want you to read something, Dave. And he went up to his room and he brought me down this little book. And it was a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And you can find that poem in our AA literature. I think it's in AA Comes of Age. And what I got out of this poem, it was written by a, 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 an alcoholic uh, addict, this guy named Francis Thompson, who was addicted to the and uh, alcohol. It was that the power of AA is like a hound that chases us down.
1: I can run away
0: from it as fast as I can, and I can deny it as fast as, I can, fast as I can, or as fervently as I can, or I can try to prove it with my mind that there's no such thing as a God or whatever, and it doesn't care. It's just a hound, and it's relentless, and it chases us and chases us and chases us. And I thought to myself, if that's the case, if that's true, then all I have to do is put my... Rear end, and a seat at one of these meetings. I'm going to let it happen. If it's if that's the way it works here, that I don't have to go find one, but it'll find me if I come here. I can do that. So I didn't have to. I didn't have to come up with a new idea of a God. I didn't have to throw away my old idea. There was a guy who was a a priest at at uh, the university men's discussion group when I first came in. His name was Tom, and he had a Terrible trouble with God, and he said that his sponsor said to him, "Tom, don't be so mad at your God. Don't just take it and put it on a shelf. You don't have to run away from it or deny it or whatever. Just put it up there and see what's going on in this room. See if you can hear from these people what they've found for this power greater than themselves and what has happened to them when they found these power greater than themselves." Um. This, Chuck mentioned this bridge of, bridge of reason and the uh, shore of faith, and I was a philosophy major in college. And then to have the legal training where I can, you know, you know as a lawyer, I don't know which side of the case is going to walk into your office, right? You know, if you're going to get the plaintiff, the defendant, who's going to come in? As long as they got money, I'm for you, right?
1: <laughs> so I can pretty
0: much, with my college Education and my training as a lawyer, I could argue anything. And I loved to argue. And I was very contrary. And I would take positions uh, uh, that it didn't matter. Whatever you thought, I could, I could think otherwise and I could argue into and believe in me. So I think myself, and I see myself standing on this bridge of reason. And I'm looking over to the shore of faith and I see all you people, all of you guys. You're all standing over on the shore of faith. And I, I can't, how do I get over there? I have no idea how to get over there. None. And here's my experience. The first guy who asked me to sponsor was an atheist. We went to tons of meetings together, you know. And one day we're talking about this second step, and I'm telling him this idea I have, that there's some sort of force in the room, there's some sort of power in the rooms, there's something that goes on in these AA meetings that's keeping me from taking the next drink. All of a sudden, I thought to myself, holy shit, I'm on the shore of faith. I don't know when I got here. I don't. I don't. But I saw myself sitting with you people. I wasn't separate anymore. I had the same beliefs you did. So the third step has made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. By the way, all the steps are two things. This is a program of recovery which has 12 steps. It's a suggested program of recovery. And if you, if you buy into our program of recovery, there are 12 steps that we take. But it's also a report of action taken by those first 100 people. So when it says, we made a decision to turn our well and our lives over to the care of God as we understood them, they're reporting what they did. You know, So I'm sitting for each step that's really important to me. Because I'm sitting with a whole bunch of people who've done this. Are you an AAD? Then you're with a whole bunch of people who've made a decision to turn the world of their life over to the care of God. Really? I don't know how to do that. It doesn't matter. Just keep coming. Keep sitting with us. We'll tell you what we did. We'll tell you how this happened to us. Now, several weeks ago when Chuck and I were asked to come here, we made a decision to come here. And this morning we went to an early men's meeting and after that we made the decision to come to this this group today in Rochester. But that in and of itself wouldn't have gotten us very far, would it? I can sit at my kitchen table and decide to do a lot of things during that day. But unless I take some action, it's not going to get me very far. So decisions are great things, but they don't really don't get me much. They don't get me very far. To turn my will and my life over to the care of God the way I understand it, my will is nothing more than my mind, how I think. That's my will. My life is nothing more than my actions what I do, how I walk around, how I look, what I say, whatever I do. So my mind and my actions are the two things that I'm asking God to help me with on a daily basis. But what, what about that decision? What, what's the, what follows that? That um, was over about 15 months, and my sponsor and his sponsor and I went down to Gowanda, New York to a meeting.
1: And the three of us were
0: going to talk that night at the meeting. Um, and three important things happened that night to me. One is we're driving down. Somebody had given me a car. My sponsor didn't have a car, and his sponsor didn't have a car. So I'm driving along. And my sponsor says to me, they're going to give us little coins down here tonight, Dave, because you and I have a year. His sponsor, John, had four years at that time. Could I have my water, John? Thanks. And at our North Buffalo group, they used to give you little pins that you put in your lapel. We still kind of call it pin night. So, um... I'm driving along. And I say to my my sponsor, Tom. Tom, how do I know I haven't had a drink in? a year? What proof do I have? I mean, I lied so much about my. I was like O. J. Simpson. Man,
1: it was like if I said
0: it loud enough or whatever. I, you know, I wasn't drinking. I didn't. You know. So, what proof do I have? I haven't had a drink in a year. And he said, Well, Dave, you haven't been hospitalized for acute and chronic alcoholism in a year. That's right, I haven't, I haven't. And that was the only proof I had, because if you had to depend on this mind 15 months over, I could tell myself still any lie, it better. So we get down there, we're telling our stories, and for the first time I hear my sponsor say that his last hospitalization at Erie County Medical Center at that hospital was his 87th time for his hospitalization for acute and chronic alcoholism. They had looked it up. That's how many times he had been there. He had been in veterans' hospitals all around the country. He'd had the last ride six times. I didn't know this about him, right? Till that night. Let me get ahead of myself a little bit here. My second cousin, my first sponsor, Tom, was a loser. He was in and out of rooms for 25 years. Everybody knew Tom was a loser anybody would have been crazy to ask him to be their sponsor. Nobody would ask Tom to be their sponsor. Why? And I didn't know this about him. All I knew is I knew him from the the Alcoholism Treatment Center. He seemed to know his way around the rooms. He seemed to know the game. He's the only guy I knew, so I asked him to be my sponsor. Now, I'm telling this story at a meeting in Florida a couple years ago. An old-timer comes up to me afterwards and says, you know, you might have saved your sponsor's life. So what are you talking about? He was the best sponsor to me that you could possibly have. He says, you gave him the opportunity to practice the 12th step on you. Nobody else would ever give him that opportunity, right? I said, yeah, that's right. That's right. Because we did stay sober. He died by 14 years of sobriety, you know. And I never looked at it that way, that I actually was instrumental in his staying sober, too, because he practiced the 12th step on me. So... They give us these coins, and we tell our thing. And on the coin, and I know a lot of you got them in your pockets, it says, to thine own self be true. So I'm looking at that, and I've read all the AA stuff. That's not an AA. they got a lot of nerve putting it on an AA coin. (laughs) Who says they could put that on an AA coin? And somebody tells me it's Shakespeare. It's out of Hamlet, to thine own self be true. what kind of crap is that? As that starts to bother me, you know, and what's really going on inside here is that I'm 15 months sober and I don't have an own self. I don't. Yet, I'm not drinking, but I'm still the same actor that I was when I walked in here. I'm still sitting at the tables, pretending everything's great, don't have a job, still just... Some limited visitation with my kids, blah blah blah. But I'm acting like everything's great. I don't have an own self. I don't have any. I don't have any principles. I don't stand for anything. I still want to just fit in. I still just don't want to be yelled at, and I'll do anything to accomplish that, you know. And I'm going to tons of meetings and I'm pretending I know a lot about AA. So I go back to my home group, and and, and all of a sudden, I'm getting like. Well, how are you doing, Dave? Well, I don't know. The last week was kind of tough. I had like five lousy days and two okay days, and blah blah blah. blah. And these guys start to tell me that if they didn't, they didn't do their four step, and they drink again. I know what they're really telling me, though, right? If you haven't done your four step, you're going to drink again. But that's not what they said. They they related their own experience. And I could see that drink getting closer and closer and closer to me. I was more restless and irritable and discontented, and I had no, no desire to do this inventory stuff. I don't want to find out, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I don't want to find out anything about me. I don't. But I didn't want to drink again, you know, so I started. I picked up that pencil. And I picked up that piece of paper with my only motive being not drinking again. I knew that I had taken that third step and completed that third step when I started on my fourth because it was more than just a decision, it was some action that I took. So on page, let's see, I have that big book. How am I doing, Derek? On page 63, it says, When we'd make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed. If we kept close to him and performed his work well, established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves. Our little plans and designs. Every day I got little plans and designs, I'll tell you. More and more we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, we enjoyed peace of mind. As we discovered that we could face life successfully, we became conscious of his presence. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We were reborn. Now, those are pretty, some pretty remarkable promises. By the way, the second step promises are some of my favorites. Second step promises says that when we took that position, we found a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction poured yeah. in. How about those for promises? Power, peace, happiness, and the sense of direction. Can you imagine a psychiatrist's office, a little sign up front, saying power, peace, happiness, and the sense of direction, free you imagine the line that would be around because he could deliver on it you know well we can deliver on that here. so at any rate the last thing here is it says we were reborn and I never think of that without thinking of my friend Patrick and Patrick was a young man in his 30s he was an alcoholic and we had some business dealings together we played some golf together I was not his sponsor but we were pretty close in AA and uh Patrick decided to take his own life as a result of drugs and alcohol. And, you know, like what happens, and everybody in this room knows somebody who's died of this disease, and you think, oh, damn. this disease. And, of course, that's the feeling I had when I heard Patrick had died. But then I got the newspaper, and, and, and there was his picture. And it said, Patrick D. died suddenly, survived by... uh, services at, donations can be made to. And I looked at that, and he was 36 years old. And I saw my own obituary. That was me. There was going to be my picture at 36, absolutely. Survived by my wife and three kids. Services at, donations could be made to. I saw that clearly. You know, but I've been, in that sense, I've been reborn. I have the same social security number. I have the same name. You know, I have the same family history. But I have a completely new life. Completely new life. There is no comparison to the life I have today to the life I had when I was in that hospital. And those doctors told me what was happening to my brain. My life has been turned completely upside down. Power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction have come into my life. You know, these other promises have come into my life as the result of taking these steps. So that's my experience. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Dave. Um, so in Alcoholics Anonymous, we get uh, four freedoms. The people who do the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous get four freedoms. We get freedom from the obsession to drink, get freedom from the bondage of self, freedom from the fear of others, and freedom from the fear of the hereafter. And at the, after that second step we are freed from the obsession to drink alcohol. That if, if we've done the first and second step, the obsession to drink will have been lifted from us. Um, because at that point, we have begun to experience this power as these prejudices get swept away. The, uh, the only thing that can remove the obsession to drink alcohol is a power that I lack on my own. Uh, when I'm uh, not connected to that power, uh, I behave uh, and, and experience certain things, and those are the bedevilments. Are outlined on page uh, fifty-two in the book, um, and that really is is a real description of alcoholism. But those bedevilments uh, say that we have trouble with personal relationships, we couldn't control our emotional natures, we're prey to misery and depression, we couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness, we were full of fear, we were unhappy, and couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And um, that's really uh, uh, my experience uh, with my life, and that described me. That described who I was, and what I was, and what I was like. Um, and it was a very uh, a painful and tortured existence. And you notice it doesn't say anything in there about alcohol. It describes really what a person is like when they're not drinking, what an alcoholic is like when they're not drinking. And that's, this is the, the, a clearer description of what Dr. Silkworth referred to uh, in the doctor's opinion when he said an alcohol without alcohol is restless, irritable, and discontented. Look at that. You couldn't, this would be very hard to find a place of peace if you're suffering from those uh, bedevilments at that point in time uh, in your life. Um, So, I uh, uh, realized today that if I am not connected to the higher power, this is how I feel. And if I feel that way for a long enough period of time, no matter how much I know that I can't drink, I don't want to drink, I won't drink, I refuse to drink, I'm definitely not going to drink, I will drink. Because these characteristics are the characteristics of someone who's an egomaniac. And that's I am. You know, I'm filled with self. Uh, my ego is not my amigo. It is destined to bring me down. Another way of looking at it is to look at it as the the lower power. And I'm a person who will... I will succumb to the temptations of the lower power at every opportunity. Evil disguises itself as good, necessary, and helpful. And that's, that's what I often saw myself. I saw myself as good. I saw the things I did as necessary. I saw myself as helpful. But I always had an, an ulterior motive. No matter what I did or what I said I was doing, it was all about me. What can I do for me? How am I going to help me? What will I get out of this? What will you do for me in this situation? And I, I, mean, I really didn't know that. I was like, I had no idea that that's what I was doing. I, I could sit up here and I could give you a, a pretty nice uh, biography of things that I did in my life. Uh, and at the conclusion of that, you would, be, you would say, well, that guy, you know, he, was, he really did a lot. He, really, he was very helpful. He helped a lot of people, a lot of organizations. He was really uh, a very helpful person. Um, But if I did that, I would only be telling you half the story. What I wouldn't be telling you about was underneath what I'm thinking is, you know, how I'm getting screwed. There's no appreciation. Where's the payback? You owe me this. Here's my scorecard. Look at this. I gave you three. You owe me eight. Come on. When are you going to give it to me? And I spent my life enraged. Enraged that people that I did, had determined were unappreciative of what had been done for them and how helpful I had been and how, how unfair it was that I wasn't getting what I deserved, uh, that I should have more. Um, our friend uh, Kathy T. Buffalo says that uh, alcoholics are addicted to more. And, you know, that's the deal. Uh, that's the deal. It's, it's more. There's never enough. It, and it's not just booze. There's never enough of anything. Uh, once I start uh, on something, it, if I'm not connected to this higher power, I believe that I, I need more. I need more praise. I need more adulation. I need more food. I need more money. I need more whatever it is. It's never enough. And that, and that mind, the alcoholic mind, is a a mind that will take me back to drinking. As Dave said earlier, and it says in the book, that our problem is in our mind. That's what we think of. Our problem problem is in our mind, and my mind is based on self. Selfishness and self-centeredness
1: are the root of our problems.